I'd like to have you turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. And uh, of course, we are continuing our study in the book of Hosea. A powerful prophecy that is directed toward the children of Israel, in particular, the northern kingdom of Israel that had been uh, divided from the southern kingdom of Israel, or I should say the southern kingdom of Judah, and ten tribes went north, and most of these tribes in their separating from, uh, from Judah, and of course we, we know after the, the great sins of, uh, of, uh, of Solomon that, uh, that this was going to happen, actually the, of David and Solomon, but uh, you know the, the nation was going to split. Uh, but uh, the northern kingdom was made up of mostly uh, uh, kings that uh, were evil kings. They, they didn't do anything that was according to God's ways. <clears throat> and so God gave them the opportunity to repent, but they continued. They continued to worship idols and worship the gods of the other nations around them. And so Hosea has this powerful message through the, the person of Hosea marrying a person named Gomer, a woman who was a harlot, a prostitute, and more than likely a temple prostitute for uh, the northern kingdom. And in the bearing of children, there was a lesson to all of Israel that they had become unfaithful just like this woman, Gomer, had become unfaithful to Hosea. And yet in chapter 2, we saw that God revealed hope, the hope that they would turn and return to the Lord. So as we come into chapter 3 this evening, and it's only five verses, and you would think that we could do that in 10 minutes, that's not going to happen. But in these five verses, there's a richness. A richness that speaks about the love of God. You know, we sang a lot about that this evening in the songs that we sang. And it's kind of interesting because I, I didn't go over this with, with, with Sean as he was selecting the songs. And as I was practicing with him earlier tonight, I, I just kind of realized, you know, that, that the Lord works things out. He orchestrates things for us with even the songs that we sang tonight about the love of God. Because that's what we're going to deal with here in this chapter. The love of God and the heart of God toward his people. Especially his adulterous people. His unfaithful people. His idolatrous people. He loves them. And he loves us, but, you know, and this is not an encouragement to go out and do all of these things. It's, it's to say that when we fall, when we fail, he continues to love us. Now, in his love, he corrects us. In his love, sometimes there's a, there, there's a, a tremendous weight of, 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 of guilt there's a, a tremendous weight of, uh, 
you know, the, the, just the heaviness of the Holy Spirit upon us to, to turn back to him. And so, but that's a part of his love to bring us back to him. Let's look at the, ver the first five verses, or actually all the five verses of Hosea 3. It says, Then said the Lord unto me, <clears throat> the prophet Hosea, God is saying to his prophet, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the, God, of, of the Lord toward the children of Israel who looked to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I brought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. For as much as the lives of the prophet Hosea and his harlot wife Gomer were the object lessons to the disobedient and rebellious children of Israel as the Lord had actually purposed them to be. It is in this short but profound chapter that the heart and love of God himself is now illustrated in one of the most dramatic ways possible. Gomer has forsaken her husband as well as her children to live with another man. This is the scene. This is what has taken place. Hosea and Gomer were as estranged and withdrawn from one another as two people could be. Alienated, separated from one another. And still, Hosea was instructed by God to demonstrate an unlimited and, in effect, an unconditional love for his wife. An unlimited and unconditional love for Gomer. Despite all the pain, despite all the suffering that Gomer had inflicted upon her husband, the prophet sought to reconcile with her in obedience to God. What this short chapter gives us is a clear de uh, description of the heart of God. First of all, we see a heart of love that seeks to reach people, even those who are the vilest of sinners. You know, that, that, uh, that little phrase kept kind of ringing in my heart and in my mind as I put this study together. The vilest of sinners. And the Lord seemed to impress on my mind and my heart that that's not to look at others. 
before looking at yourself. So we see a heart of love that seeks to reach people, even those who are the vilest of sinners. Verse 1, look at verse 1. It says, And said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. He's speaking, by the way, of Gomer, his wife. And again, they're estranged, they're separated, they're, they're alienated from one another. He says, go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend. He's using a language that, that has, in fact, brought the picture of separation. Go to love a woman. Not your wife, not your ex-wife, not, not your estranged wife. Love a woman beloved of her friend yet an adulteress. According to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who look to other gods and love flagons or flagons of wine. So what we know about God's love is that God's love is reaching. It is reaching. It is a love that reaches. Two songs we sang tonight use that phrase that God's love reaches to us. And not only does it reach, but it reaches to the heavens. And, and that picture of, of reaching to the heavens in that song is, is to tell us how great and awesome that love is. It's an unconditional love. It's immeasurable, the kind of love that God has for us. And the fact that Gomer had left Hosea and was living with a lover illustrates the way Israel had treated the Lord. That's the whole picture here. Significantly, the Hebrew word for friend, which is the Hebrew word reya, has at its root meaning the word evil. It's interesting because the, the word evil in, in, in Hebrew is ra, and it, it, it's part of the word reya, which means friend. That's the kind of friend that she made with this other person, this other man. Hence, Gomer was a lover and a friend of evil because it was not prescribed by God. And yet Hosea was to love her. God tells Hosea, go yet and love a woman. Ahav is the Hebrew word for love. And it's the strongest Hebrew word for love. Love a woman beloved of her friend. He was to love her according to the love of the Lord, it says, toward the children of Israel. According to that very same kind of love that God had for Israel, even though he could not acknowledge her as the Lord would not acknowledge Israel as his bride. Not because of what God chose to do, but because of what Israel chose to do. Estrange herself from him. So as the Lord would not acknowledge Israel as his bride, she was still beloved by Hosea as Israel was beloved by their God, even though they were looking after other gods. And they had gotten to the point where they had loved these other gods so much and worshipped these other gods so much <coughs> that it mentions 
that they look to other gods and love flagons of wine, which is an interesting thing about this particular statement we find in verse 1, because the love for the flagons of wine mentioned were used, actually these flagons of wine were used for drink offerings to pagan deities and used to the point of celebrating drunken idol feasts. Every pagan, every pagan culture, in other words, every pagan culture that worshiped idols, that found its root in, in Babylonian mysticism or Babylonian uh, idol worship. This is one reason why we get the word Baal read so much throughout the scriptures. Uh, all of that began in Babel on the plains of Shinar. And all they ever did was do everything to worship other gods than the true God that created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> so in their offering of the, of the most wonderful delicacies and offerings of wine, and, 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 and the wine here, by the way, uh, most translations of the phrase flagons of wine suggest that they love the cakes of dried grape or raisins. I think some of the cakes of raisins is in some of your translations you might have. Well, they loved the cakes of dried grapes or raisins. That to them, they were sweet cakes that, were, that they would themselves consecrate for use in pagan worship. So that's why the Lord mentions that here, that they looked to other gods and they brought all of their offerings to these gods that were idols. And they were something that they gave to them much like we see happening in, in, in some religions today, in particular uh, Buddhist religions. Uh, we've been to China where we have seen, uh, and it, it doesn't even happen just in China. You go into some Chinese restaurants, even in El Paso, and they'll have a Buddha, and they'll have these little uh, uh, jars with, with incense, and, and they have oranges out in front. You know, they're, they're, they're putting out these little offerings to these little pagan deities. So it still goes on today. But that's how, the, the whole purpose of mentioning that was that that's how deeply involved with idol worship they had become. In Hosea's case, what all of this illustrated was the wide gulf and the deep sense of alienation that existed between the prophet and Gomer, magnified by the fact that the friend lover, who actually loved her, by the way, making that bond even stronger to break. That's how the language reads in verse 1. Love a woman beloved of her friend. Loved by that friend. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the kind of love that God has, but it's still a love that could be understood in the world. And as much as Hosea would have to face the most humbling and humiliating experience in the eyes of the public, he was instructed by the Lord to demonstrate unconditional love by seeking reconciliation with his adulterous wife. He was to illustrate God's unlimited love for those who had forsaken him and turned to the false gods of this world. That's what Hosea was doing to illustrate to Israel what God wanted to do because of that great love that he had for his people. 
You know, it bears repeating what we know and what we believe about the love of God. It bears repeating. We should never get tired of reading John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The sacrifice of God is the sacrifice of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's love, folks. That may not be the love of other gods. That may not be the love of other religions. That's the love of the one true God. It is that same love that Peter, I'm sorry, that Paul talks about in Romans 5, verses 8 through 10, when he says, but God commendeth his love toward us. In his commending his love toward us, he, what he's doing is he's demonstrating. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. See, this, this statement here makes it very clear that there's nothing that you and I can do to be saved. There's nothing you and I can do to help in our salvation. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And again, we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. That's what Paul told Titus. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Paul triply identifies us as, as needing salvation from Christ and Christ alone. Christ himself, Christ on the cross, Christ shed blood, Christ's resurrection. We are saved by his life. It was in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 that, that Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, <clears throat> we can never separate God's mercy from God's love. In fact, it is the same. When you do a study of the word mercy in, in, in Scripture, you realize that it pertains primarily to God's love. Mercy is God keeping us from what we deserve. And if that's not love, I don't know what is. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even while, when we were dead in sins. And there it is again. When you and I were dead in sins, what were we? We were dead. And you know, when you're dead, you can't do anything. People have died in our families for centuries, right? We don't bring them back. We can't. And they can't come back on their own. Why? Because they're dead. I think death is an illustration in Scripture based upon what we were while we were in sin and what we are now that Christ has saved us. is quite a, a, a distinctive type of illustration. When you are dead in sins, you can do nothing to save yourself. That's the whole picture here. 
But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins has quickened us. In other words, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. By grace. By God's undeserved favor. That's the only way you can be saved. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He laid down his life. That's God's love. That's how we perceive the love of God. He laid down his life. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friends. A few days ago, in my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers said something quite interesting, and I've read it before, but it didn't hit me kind of like it hit me the other day. He's talking about this issue of laying down our lives. And he said something that I, I, I thought was just really kind of revolutionary. <laughs> he says, you know, it's easy, it's, it's easy just to die. You can die to self. It's easy to die. It's difficult to lay down your life. Because when you lay down your life, you have to lay it down every day. Lay down your life. There's a sense of death in it. But he was trying to contrast this thing about just kind of just talking about being dead or, or dying in the, in the physical sense. No greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life. You lay it down. Harder to lay down your life on a daily basis than just to die to self. Interesting thing. Just a, thought I'd mention that. Probably has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Maybe it does. I hope it has a little bit to do with what we're talking about. So those are statements that we find in the New Testament. But one of the greatest statements of love found in Scripture is actually in the Old Testament. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's in the book of Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 1 through 4. And I want you to listen what the Lord says to Jeremiah. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Now remember, this is, this is one of the themes of, of, of God preparing the children of Israel for their chastisement for their idolatry and their adultery, spiritual adultery. What is it? I called you Ami, my people, but because you have sinned and gotten away from me, now it's lo ami, you're not my people. But then the Lord says, one day again, I will call you ami, my people. And here it is, again, will I be the God, at the same time, will I be the God of all the people, or all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people, ami. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Now, is that not tying together with what we've learned about grace in the New Testament, the statements that were made about the love of God in saving us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Israel was in fact dead in their trespasses and sins. But God said the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him 
to rest. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, and here it is, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. By the way, loving kindness is mercy. And it's not just mercy, it's mercies. The mercies of God. It's really plural. Loving kindnesses. The mercies of God. With loving kindness have I drawn thee. God has showed us great mercy in this life. And again, he says, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Now, what what does that suggest to you when he says, O virgin of Israel? Israel had done what? They had left the Lord. They had found other gods to be married to. And they committed spiritual adultery against God. Yet when they come back to God, he will be confident. He will be confident in calling them, O virgin of Israel. Why? Because he will cleanse them. He will purify them. And he will change them. They will become a new creature, a new person. Do you understand that? That's New Testament. That's New Testament. That's, that's, second, that's second Corinthians 5.17. I am a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. What does that mean to you? I hope it means that you understand that when you come to Christ, you are crucified with Christ on the cross. And you, you, you die to self. You die to the old man. You die to the old things. And you become alive in Jesus. Alive in Christ. O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets. Oh my goodness. Israel will be Pentecostal. You know what tabrets are? Tambourines, man. Woo! (laughs) They like them tambourines. Israel likes them too. And God likes to hear them from his people. And shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Oh, how different that is from the condition of Israel right now in the time of Hosea, because they're way uh, far from that yet, both in time and spiritually. But God reaches, you see, the love of God reaches. It's reaching. It's reaching back to them. It's reaching straight to them. And it's saying, come back to me. Secondly, God's love is redeeming. God's love is redeeming. Let's go to verse 2 of Hosea chapter 3. 
So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a ho and half homer of barley. The heart of God is a heart of redemption. The heart of God is a heart of redemption, willing to pay any price. Now listen carefully. Willing to pay any price to save the vilest of sinners of this world. God's heart is willing to pay any price to save the vilest of sinners of this world. There, there's, there's a lesson that we can learn from the prophet Hosea. No matter what the cost or, or the degree of pain and affliction that we suffer, whether in similar situations or not, it is better to obey the Lord. It is better to obey the Lord. See, what did Hosea do? Hosea obeyed the Lord. The Lord said, I want you to go and love a woman, beloved of a friend. Hosea would have, could have been like a lot of people are today when they hear the voice of God say, go and reconcile with that person. Go reconcile with someone. I'm, I'm just using a little simpler example. Go reconcile with that person. God, I am not moving. They need to reconcile with me. That's the kind of conversation some people have with God. They'll never tell you that. But I think we all know that that happens. Probably because we've probably been there too. Let's, let's not forget that God knows us when we're by ourselves. We, we can't fool him. We can fool each other. We can't fool him. Can't fool him. It's better to obey God. And Hosea was hurt. He was devastated because of what his wife had done. And you might think that Hosea might have also been a little bit upset with the Lord for saying, Lord, you made me marry her, and then she becomes this person, this person I, I just, I can't handle. That was a great degree of pain and affliction that Hosea suffered. But Hosea obeyed God. It was that great lesson that King Saul had to learn from Samuel after willfully disobeying God and Samuel, who came representing God. When, when Saul did not utterly destroy the Amalekites and all of their livestock. He, he saved some for himself. He saved some so that he could get some credit. He was a selfish person. He wanted attention. He wanted to show other nations that he had power. He himself had power. And that to some degree as a king, he also had a little bit of mercy. But God had commanded Saul to destroy all of the Malachites as well as all of their livestock. 
And when Samuel arrives where Saul was, and he heard the bleeding of sheep, what do you think Saul or Samuel did? First of all, his heart had to have sunk because immediately he realized Saul had not obeyed God. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23, it says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight? Now he's speaking directly to the king. He's speaking to Saul. And he says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Because remember, Saul saved some of the livestock so that he could do what? Use that as some, some kind of leverage, but also use it to say, Oh, listen, I saved them so that we could offer it unto the Lord. Samuel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, saw through that. He says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings? Does he really delight in that? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? What do you think he'll delight in more, Saul? The sacrifice because you saved it for him? Or the fact that you did not obey him? Behold, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken, to pay attention to what God says, to hearken and to do what God says than the fat of rams. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, which, by the way, eventually the northern kingdom of Israel got well into witchcraft, well into the stubbornness of saying, we're going to do things our way, we're going to build our altars, we're going to fashion our gods, and we're going to worship them as a better worship than those who are down worshiping in Jerusalem where we don't want to be. So that, if you will, was some catalyst, as it were, that moved the people of Israel toward idolatry. As for Hosea, we find that he had to buy Gomer back. He had to buy his wife back at the cost of 15 pieces of silver, which scripturally speaking is half the price of a slave. Just today, Homer, uh, just today, Hosea, 50% off for your wife. That's according, by the way, not what I'm saying, but that's according to Exodus 21. Half of the price of a slave. Because a slave, you see, in Exodus 21, verse 32, it says, if the ox shall push, which means gore, a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If an ox gores a slave, 
and they lose the slave, then the person who owned the ox has to pay the, the person who had the slave 30 pieces of silver. So we knew that a slave, so this is half the, the cost of a slave, 15 pieces of silver. But along with the silver, he also gave about 10 bushels, bushels of barley. <clears throat> the fact is, and, and, and you need to listen carefully to this, this thought. The fact is, this was not an excessive or steep price. What Hosea paid for getting Gomer back. It was not an excessive or a steep price. It does, however, reflect something. It reflects that Gomer had cheapened herself by her sins. Gomer had cheapened herself by her sins. That, that, that's a strong thought. That's a powerful thought. But it's something that we ought to take into consideration when we find ourselves in the midst of the temptations of sin, the temptations of sin for a season, which were all around the people of God, all around the, the great heroes of faith, around Moses and, and others. In fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews that Moses himself would not lower himself to the sins of, of the season, but he stayed faithful to God. Just consider the very fact that once we begin to move in a direction away from God that we're cheapening what was paid for us. What we need to remember through all of this is that the Lord has purchased us. He has purchased us at a tremendous cost. He purchased us with the precious blood of his dear son as Peter states clearly in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, when he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received <clears throat> by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's how you were redeemed. That's with what you were redeemed, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So whatever the case may have been for Hosea to pay what he paid to this lover friend of Gomer, the prophet humbled himself and redeemed his wife. He humbled himself and redeemed his wife. If you want a simple definition of redeemed, it is to buy back, to buy back. He paid the ransom price demanded and he set her free from her sinful lifestyle. He then brought her back home with him. Always keep in mind that Hosea was obeying a specific command from God. The ransom price he paid is a vivid picture of God's heart of redemption. He paid the highest price imaginable to set us free by sending his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem us. But I want you to also consider what Jesus himself did. 
What did Jesus himself do? Well, Jesus left all the glory, all the worship, all the service of heaven itself to come to earth to pay the ransom price for us, to put upon himself flesh. Think of it in these terms. The price of our redemption was a life for a life. One life for all of ours. The Lord gave his life for us. He gave his life to set us free from our sinful, unfaithful, and unbelieving ways. Through the sacrifice of his life, his death on the cross, we are set free to be reconciled to God forever. Through the sacrifice of his life, his death on the cross, we are set free to be reconciled to God forever. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. He says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the redemption, the buying back that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus bought us back with his blood. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were all cursed by the law because we could not keep the law ourselves. There was no way that we in this flesh could ever keep the law because we have to keep the law completely. You know, some Jewish people today think, you know, well, I'm, I've got to keep the law, and, I, you know, I'm going to be able to keep all these 604 commandments that, you know, are, are established in the Scripture. Well, they can't do that. They try to keep a number of them, and then over here they break in others. No, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He became a curse for you and for me. In fact, think of it this way, even to this day, he's still a curse. In fact, a lot of people use his name as a curse word. Isn't that something? The name that sets you free from sin and death is the name that the world will use flippantly as some kind of a swear word. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 7, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now notice this. In verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, according to the riches of his undeserved favor. Titus chapter 2, verses 13, through 14, 13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us 
from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 14. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So notice that our redemption is eternal. It isn't temporary. It isn't on a conditional basis. Well, if you guys can keep some of the law, if you can keep this one and that one and do this or do that or don't do this and don't do that, you know, you might just be redeemed completely at the end of time. No, when Christ died, he died to give us eternal redemption. And therefore he says, having obtained eternal redemption for us, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, and that's the reason why, because the spirit of God is eternal, the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So when we try to put our flesh into trying to make ourselves better or trying to be uh, do something, you know, to help us save ourselves. Uh, it's just dead works. It's dead works. Read, read the book of James. Uh, he talks about those, those, you know, faith without works is dead. Those works, when you do them, not for salvation, but when you do them from salvation, they're, they're, they're living works. The same with Ephesians. You got to read Ephesians. All right. So God's love is redeeming. It's a redeeming love. Thirdly, God's love, is, uh, God's love reigns righteously. It reigns righteously, and this is an important point. If you look at verses 3 and 4 of our text. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Now Hosea is speaking to his wife, but this, these are the words of God speaking to his people, Israel. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days, thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. So we'll, we'll get to the understanding of that in just a moment. But the heart of God is a heart that demands trust and faithfulness. The heart of God is a heart that demands trust and faithfulness. When Hosea brought Gomer back home, he naturally laid down some strict rules to guard their renewed relationship. The same happens with us and, and the Lord. That's what this is all about, the Word of God. Gomer was never to commit adultery against her husband and never to commit adultery again and never to be intimate again with another man. She was to remain at home and be tested for a time, perhaps a long time, but she was to remain at home and be tested for a time before Hosea would have intimate relations with her. He would love her, but they would have to wait for their own intimacy. Now, this may have been a form of discipline, 
to help teach her self-control over those urges of the flesh. But in addition, this was also done to make sure that she was free from disease as well as free from uncleanness. When you read the law about uncleanness, there are times, there are certain times that have to be set aside for the woman to be made clean again. And then she was not to be uh, with a child of another, so that also had to take time. You want to make sure that she was not uh, pregnant with another child. Now, that's not a, a matter of saying, well, if she was, what are, what are they going to do? They're not, certainly was not a, a call for abortion. Don't, don't think in those terms. But possibly the giving up of a child. There is a spiritual application and message for today in these last few verses of chapter 3. Israel today, for example, though purchased by their Messiah, see, because that's why Jesus came. He came unto his own, his own did not receive him, but to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile, that's what the Bible says. So he always, always comes to his people first. So he came and purchased them by their, you know, the Messiah came and purchased them by the shedding of his blood. Yet they have not returned to the Lord. They have not yet returned to the Lord. Israel today is without a king because she rejected her king and therefore she has no kingdom. Um, I'll get to verse 4 in just a second. Let's go, let's go to John chapter 11. This is a kind of an interesting way of looking at this passage here uh, as pertains to Israel today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> John 11 verse 47. Now, the council, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they, they were all just totally just upset with everything that was going on with Jesus. And um, so they gathered, it says, then gathered the chief priests, the Pharisees, the council, and said, what do, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. In other words, they saw what he was doing. He had, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's, you know, that's el numero uno, big time, you know, stuff. Raises Lazarus from the dead. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. They were worried that people were going to believe in Jesus because he was the Messiah, because he was. You see how blind they were? And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. See, they were more concerned with their position rather than bringing the Messiah for the people that they served or claimed to serve. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us, it is beneficial for us, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And you wonder, you know, this Caiaphas was really instrumental in taking and putting Jesus on the cross. We know that because we read on later. But... Notice in verse 51 it says, And this spake he not of himself. He didn't say it because he was saying it of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. 
Even though he didn't even know what he was saying, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. That is, in effect, saying, this is the Messiah. Even though he would not have accepted that. You see how, how blind he was and how blind the people were? And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children that were scattered abroad. So, so this, this would include all of Israel that would believe on the Messiah. If you go back to Isaiah 53, verse 8, for just a second, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. The very sin of his people. What was the sin? They rejected him as Messiah. Luke 19, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. What else needed to be said? What about John 19, verse 15? But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest. Notice the chief priest that would have included who? Caiaphas. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. It was so necessary for Jesus to die on behalf of his people. The children of Israel, after their Babylonian, the children of Judah, after their Babylonian captivity, determined that they would not worship idols again. About 200 years before the birth of Christ, the Pharisees arose and they determined to keep the law as best as they could. And so, verse 4 of our text, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king. Well, they have and still have no king yet. And without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image. In other words, they put them aside already, for the most part, as a people. They're back in the land. There's a, relig there, there's a religious section of people in Israel. There's others who are still uh, secular, but still Jews. They're without a sacrifice. They're without an image and without an ephod, something to determine for them what God's plans are. And without teraphim, teraphim are idols. But, Notice verse 5, because that's God's love now restoring. God's love restoring. Afterward, afterward, the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. That's yet to come. It's coming. The, the, the people of Israel, they're in, in the land again. It's coming. This is the reality that some people don't want to believe, but folks, we need to believe it because it, it exists. It's real. So the heart of the Lord 
is a heart that seeks to save all. Even the vilest of sinners, all who have turned away from him. And of course, this includes the children of Israel during Hosea's day, as well as the unfaithful of all generations. And as long as Gomer lived in sin, she and Hosea were alienated and separated from one another. So it was with the adulterous people of Israel. They, they were separated from God. In fact, Gomer's separation from Hosea and his home was a vivid illustration of the coming exile of the Israelites. The northern kingdom would spend their captivity in, in Assyria, the southern kingdom later on in Babylon. They were separated from God, and they would soon be separated from their homes and their homeland. But there is a key word in verse 5. The key word is return. After afterward shall the children of Israel return. That's the key word. They would see their Messiah. They would repent of their sins and say to him, You are my God. And in entering into that blessed relationship with him, he would finally say to them, You are my people. This, of course, will occur in the latter days when the Messianic king will sit on David's throne and judge righteously. In fact, there's a tremendous prophecy given by the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. We should pay more attention to this around Christmas time. It says, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Anytime you see, about the, see anywhere in scripture about the David on his throne, that's Messiah. That's Jesus. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. Folks, when you see the word kingdom, what does that suggest? A king is ruling. What did it say about Israel today? No kingdom, no king, until Jesus comes. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. As I said, the key word is return. The word return is used 22 times in Hosea's prophecy. 22 times. Simply when Israel repents and returns to the Lord, then the Lord will return to bless Israel. Even from what we learned in our study of the book of Ezekiel, God has returned to his place and left Israel to herself until she seeks him. God has returned to his place as far as Israel is concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't keep an eye on his people. That doesn't mean that he doesn't know what's happening for them and to them and, and, and what's happening with them, that his hand has been removed. No, he's got his hand on them. But I want you to see three passages that, that are ahead that may be looked at as we close our study. The first one is Hosea 5.15. Hosea 5.15, notice that this is God speaking, and he says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. I will go and return to my place. God has gone to return to his place, but remember in Ezekiel, that when the people of, of Judah had sinned so badly before God, that we saw, the, we, we saw the, the very glory of the Lord depart from the temple. 
So this, this is an idea, this is the understanding. I will go return to my place till they're, until they acknowledge their offense, until they confess their sin and seek his face. Remember that God said to them, if you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me with what? With all your heart. They have yet to do that as a people. Some have. There are many Jews today that, have, that, that know Jesus as their Messiah. But as a nation, they have yet to do that. They will do it one day, as the prophets suggest. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord. Notice the word return again. Come and let us return unto the Lord. This is the people saying, let's come and, and return to the Lord, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. But here's the message of Hosea. In a nutshell... Hosea 14, verses 1 and 2. This is his message in a nutshell. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously so will we will we render the calves of our lips the word calves there interestingly enough means what it means the calves of our lips are, are the, what would they offer as a sacrifice the calves of you know the the livestock as it were he says so calves represents their sacrifices it represents their fruit it represents their praise, and it represents their vows, the vows of their lips unto the Lord. Take away our iniquity, receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips, the sacrifices, the fruit, the praise, and the vows of our lips. So this is an encouraging chapter, as small as it is, and yet there's still a lot that has to happen. We're, we're still early on in this particular book. But the focus is going to be turning much greater now to the nation of Israel itself. So we'll keep that in mind as we prepare to study chapter 4 next time.